It's me again. Uh, Our final scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel of Mark. Hear the word of the Lord. Actually, not Mark. I'm off to a great start. Our gospel, our next reading comes from the, the gospel of Luke. We're changing gospels this morning. The gospel of Luke, chapter 19, starting at verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the moment that is called, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I mean, you may be seated. Pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, We come again to your word. We come again to these stories that are familiar to us in our minds, but perhaps not familiar enough to us in our hearts. Work in us this morning by the power of your word and your spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds to the truths that lie within. Change our lives by the power of your word this morning. We we ask this and we pray this in the name of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, our King. Amen. So over the, the past month or so, I've been slowly building a, a chicken coop. I've showed off my chicken coop to many of you, shown you pictures of this beautiful thing that I'm trying to create. I've even talked many of you into helping me build parts of it. Uh, but at the beginning, when I first started putting pieces of wood together to build a chicken coop, you, you couldn't necessarily tell what it was going to be. In fact, when my children would come and help me by handing me nails and hammers and stuff, they couldn't really tell, okay, where are the chickens going to go? Where's the roof? Are you sure about this? This doesn't look like a chicken coop, Dad. Uh, but slowly and surely, as we kind of kept on adding new pieces to this thing, it was revealed to them, and they could see, oh, okay, this is where the chickens go. This is the door. Okay, this is the door. Okay, we, 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 we kind of see it now. Uh, you know, we're, we're almost done. We just have a little bit of touch-up paint and some hardware. Uh, and the chickens have quite literally come home to roost. And slowly but surely, this vision that I had in my mind of what this chicken coop would, would look like has come 
to reality. It's been revealed. Maybe you've experienced something like this before, driving by a construction site. You wonder, what's that thing that they're building right there? And you start to guess and you start to wonder. Maybe it's a Chick-fil-A or, you know, or whatever else you wish would come to. Trader Joe's, all those little things. You wonder, what's, what's that that's being built? And then slowly, over time, you start to make guesses and then a sign goes up. And then you start to see, okay, it's, I see what this is being built. And there's no mistaking what it is now. Well, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, has been telling his disciples all along what's happening. He's already told them that he's going to die and rise again, but they had no idea. They couldn't see it yet. It's always been a little bit veiled, even, even if they were beginning to see. The wider world had not yet seen what Jesus was doing. But finally, in this moment this morning, Jesus removes the, the veil. Very clearly, he shows the world who he is. He shows them what they've only been guessing about up to this point. There's no mistaking it. For those who weren't sure what he was claiming before, it's made clear on this day, Jesus is the king. There is, there is no question about it. He's claiming his royal bloodline. He is claiming his throne. To really get at what's been happening here in Luke, for a little context of where we're at, the Gospel of Luke, more than any of the other Gospels, is focused on the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. In fact, the, the Gospel of Luke both begins and ends in Jerusalem. It even talks about Jerusalem more than two times as much as all the other Gospels. Focused on this idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem. In fact, in, back in chapter 9, we find his, his ascent towards Jerusalem began. It says in chapter 9 of Luke, 9.51, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. And in the chapter before this chapter here, it's, it's, it continues this language in, in chapter 18.35. It says he drew near to Jericho. Then at the beginning of chapter 19, it says he passed through Jericho, continually focused. Drawing near, drawing near, drawing near to Jerusalem. He's headed to his throne. He's, his face is set on it. Finally, the time for Jesus has come. He is reaching the end of his time here. He is reaching his destination. All the hiding, all the telling the people that he heals to, to keep quiet about who he is, that's all over now. His time has come. The veil that's been there in the parables is being removed. He is the king. The long way it is over. And as this is revealed to them in this moment, what we're going to find, as Jesus reveals himself publicly to the world, that this revelation is both better than they could have hoped for. And in other ways, it's actually maybe a little disappointing for them as well. And so as we look at this familiar text this morning, we're going to see the amazing way that Jesus clearly reveals his identity to the watching world. So that's the question. How does this happen? Well, Luke is going to reveal this to us in three distinct ways. And in each of the ways that Jesus has revealed to us this morning, we're going to find allusions to the Old Testament. So I'm going to bring up a lot of Old Testament passages. You don't necessarily have to turn there. But I recommend writing these passages down and looking them up later. Because to really understand how loudly it's being declared that Jesus is the king, that he is a long way the Messiah, that he is Yahweh in the flesh. We have to understand what is being alluded to in the Old Testament, that there's no mistake about what he is saying and what he is claiming. So how is Jesus being revealed as king to us here in this passage? Well, the first way is this. The preparations reveal Jesus as king. 
The preparations reveal Jesus as king. This is amazing. Even in the preparations, we find out who Jesus is. Look with me back at verse 28 through 34. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied unto which no one has ever sat and untied, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. The first way we find that Jesus is talking about himself as king is he speaks. He makes a decree and people listen. People do what he says. This act alone is very kingly. A king decrees something and his subjects respond and listen. Much like what happens in my own home with my children. Uh, But the point is easily read over. Uh, This point is easily, I think we we read over this, but it's actually made more explicit by the response of the people who were uh, having their their cult taken. We might expect that uh, his disciples would listen to him. They kind of knew him. But who are these strangers here? Imagine finding someone breaking into your car and they said, oh, the Lord has need of this. Uh, this culturally probably would not be quite as strange as what's happening here. But either way, you didn't just take strangers' colts in this time either. Uh, you know, they were necessary. They helped people farm. They helped carry heavy loads. And yet, the people didn't protest at all. The Lord has need of it. Okay. Even in this, Jesus is exercising his kingly authority. He, he makes commands. He makes decrees and people respond. The preparations for the procession into Jerusalem really start to overtly reveal who he is in an unmistakable way in his choice of the mighty donkey. You know, when you think of riding on a donkey, our natural instinct is to think of how humble it is. They're humble creatures, those donkeys are. Uh, And this is actually a good response. They are humble. Great warriors uh, didn't ride on donkeys into battle. Could you imagine a painting of a king on a donkey riding into battle with his sword in the air? Uh, You don't ride a donkey to impress girls. Uh, It's a hint for you young men in the room. You ride on mighty stallions, right? Uh, If you've ever seen a mighty stallion or perhaps ridden one, you know the power that they have. Believe it or not, there was a day in my younger age where I used to be a wrangler-wearing man who rode horses often. We raised them, and there's something always a little bit scary about them, always a little bit amazing the power, if, you, if you've ever ridden one, of a strong horse beneath you. Or you have these reins that give you the illusion of control over this beast. But any good rider will uh, tell you and, 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 and tell you to have a measure of respect and fear for what you're riding. Right? Mighty stallions project power. They project authority, might. All the things you would expect a mighty king to show us. And yet Jesus, the mightiest king of them all, the creator of kings and kingdoms, the most to be feared of all kings, chooses a donkey. Well, why? Why the donkey? It seems so strange to us, but to the Jewish people present, they knew that although a donkey is humble, the donkey was the sign of a king. It should tell us something about what, uh, what we should expect from authorities Uh, In 1 Kings 1, we actually find Solomon riding his father's, David's donkey to be anointed as king. Kings ride donkeys. 
even in the prophecy that we read from the beginning of our service in the call of worship of Zechariah 9.9, in a prophecy about the coming king and Messiah, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, in our kind of postmodern world, humility and authority are, seem to be at odds with each other, aren't they? They seem to be opposed to each other. You're either one or the other. You can't be in an authoritative position and be humble. Because we all know that all people in power are going to abuse it. In an ironic way, it's, authority is always seen as bad unless what? Unless you're the one that has it, right? But here, we find that Jesus is both humble and authoritative. In an insane way, he is the most humble man that's ever lived, and he is the most powerful man that's ever lived. He is the humble king. And he uses his authority not to abuse others with it, but to serve with it. He is the servant king. But don't mistake this as weakness. He is not weak. There is none stronger. Christ lacks nothing. And yet he is humble. Isn't this what true humility is? Knowing your state, knowing your power, and actually laying it down. God, the creator of all things, is humble. How much more does this mean that we, his created beings, should be humble? So the people watching these preparations would have known what is happening. They would have known this prophecy. They would have known what these preparations meant, that Jesus is king. The disciples would have been really excited. Imagine if you've ever experienced a long-awaited day, like waiting a long time to be married, or waiting a long time for a child, or waiting to get that job or waiting for the Mariners to make the playoffs. Baseball season, sorry. And then it actually happens. And you pinch yourself and you think, is this really happening? Is this happening now? This is only a fraction of what they must have been feeling in this moment. They've been waiting generations upon generations for this day. And now they're lucky enough to be there with Jesus in this moment. This is incredible. It's like being here when Jesus returns, bringing the, the new heavens and new earth with him. That's an incredible moment in history. Uh, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying as he was coming into the city. The time is now. It's here. The kingdom of God is here. Uh, it's at hand. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It was unmistakable. Jesus is the king. This in itself, even just this preparations, which is kind of wild, would be enough for us to know exactly who Jesus is. But we still need to have the procession, don't we? You don't prepare for a wedding just to skip to the feast, even if you might want to. Uh, you still got to have the ceremony. The ceremony is necessary. And what a ceremony we find here. So the first way we know that Jesus is a king is in the preparations. And the second thing we see here is that the, the procession also reveals Jesus as king. The procession reveals Jesus as king. The day is here. Jesus sits on his donkey. He begins to ride into the city. The air is thick in anticipation. You get this picture. People are coming out of the woodworks, crawling out over the land, gathering along the pathway. And then they do something which is a little bit odd. At least it should seem odd to us if we're reading 
honestly. Look with me here at verse 35 and 36. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, Jesus sat on it. Okay, that seems pretty normal. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Well, that seems a little less normal, doesn't it? Uh, they laid their cloaks on the ground. Why would they put their coats? Don't they need those coats? Why would you let a donkey walk on these coats? It's like putting your coats on the road when the president drives by. It seems a little bit unnecessary. Well, again, this is actually pointing us back to the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 9.13, to set the stage, you have the prophet Elisha hears from the word of the Lord to anoint a new king, a good king, King Jehu. And this king is going to root out idol worship brought to the land by Jezebel. If you want to read a wild passage of scripture, read 2 Kings 9 later today. Uh, but when he is anointed, he is anointed as king and sent on this mission. And as he is going, the people respond by saying this in 2 Kings 9, 13. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Again, in this scene that we have, the people are gathered. They knew what they were doing. They were thinking about this moment in history. They were thinking about 2 Kings 9. This is why it's important uh, to know your history. And as they were laying their cloaks on the ground, what were they saying? Jesus is king. He is the uh, anointed one. But we find this not just in their actions, but they actually put it on their lips too. In verse 38, we see this. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Their cries here are explicit. Jesus is their king. He is their peace. He is their glory. And even, even here, they're actually quoting from the Old Testament, from what we read a little bit earlier from Psalm 118. We find these words in Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is the last of what are known as the Hallel Psalms, which is a group of psalms that are sung during Passover meals. And in Psalm 118, we find these words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Of course, Psalm 118 is on their minds because Passover is coming. And they can't help but burst out in praise. This psalm is on their minds. The great king has arrived. The light has shone upon them. He is here. There's no mistaking what is happening. There's no mistaking what Jesus is claiming. And just like Jehu was anointed and recognized as king on his way to destroy the gods of Baal, so now Jesus is anointed and recognized as king to destroy the false gods. Only he's not headed to Baal. Where is he headed? To Jerusalem. More specifically, he's actually headed to the temple. Jesus is headed to the temple. And in fact, we find the language changing as he draws near uh, to the temple of the Lord, which has become devoted to a place of idol worship. And when he enters the temple, what we find is that the language changes here from not he is drawing near, but finally he arrived. That's where he was going. And this is obviously uh, famously when he walks in there and turns over the tables and saying the place of worship has been, been turned into a den of thieves. 
What Jesus is doing in all this is he's exercising his authority that he is king. He has come to claim back his throne, to claim back his land, to take back his people. This is why Jesus has come for this purpose. And for the first time in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't stop the praise and exaltation of who he is. He is no longer trying to hide who he is. But he puts himself on full display. The fulfillment of, of all the prophecies, the allusion to the kings gone before, the quoting the Psalm 118, Jesus is king. He is the rightful king. He is riding to his throne. And as this is all being unveiled and all being revealed in all this spectacular way, how do the Pharisees respond? These religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to actually watch and anticipate his coming, how do they respond? The Pharisees know uh, what they're, what's being claimed, and they don't respond with praise, but they respond with a protest. What we're going to find here is even their protest reveals who Jesus is. And so, the, again, we, we have the, the uh, preparations revealing that Jesus is king. We have the procession revealing that Jesus is king. And now, third and finally, we have even the protest reveals that Jesus is king. The protest reveals that Jesus is king. Let's look at this protest. Right? All of what we've talked about is unfolding before the eyes of the Pharisees. They know what's happening. They know what's being claimed. They know the allusions to the Old Testament. And how do they respond in verse 39? And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. To them, this was blasphemous. To call Jesus the Messiah, to call him king. He's not king. Uh, And so they tell Jesus, tell your people to stop saying these things. Yet even in their protest... We find a nod to the Old Testament when King David enters the city of David with the Ark of the Covenant for the first time, the, the Ark being the sign of the presence of God. Finally, it's being brought into Jerusalem. And during the procession in, in 2 Samuel 6, what do we find? We find David dancing and celebrating. Maybe you've heard these stories of dance, David dancing undignified before the Lord, before the, before the Ark as it's being processed into the city. And we find someone rebuking David for this. Someone rebuking David for not acting appropriately. It's the daughter of of Saul, Michal, rebukes David for his actions, for not acting kingly. What we find in this, though, is even in their rebuke, even in the rebuke of the Pharisees, they are inadvertently confirming that Jesus is king. He is in the line of David kind of king. He is the rightful king. He is the long-awaited one, the Messiah, being rebuked just like David was when he processed into the city. Now Jesus, who actually is the very presence of God, God in the flesh, a type of ark of the covenant, is actually coming to the city again. And again, there are those who mock him, but even in their protests, they reveal that Jesus is the king. And this is why Jesus responds to them by saying in in verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All of creation, even the lifeless rocks, know who I am, Jesus is saying. Even if you shut the mouths of the disciples, you cannot contain this event. Nothing can. Not even their protests. Not even the silence of the disciples. Because even if they were, dis- they were silent, what would happen is the rocks would grow mouths, they would grow lungs, and they would begin to sing out, Jesus is king. Because all creation can see it. 
Jesus is king. And as if everything that he had done here wasn't enough for us to say, okay, (laughs) we get it. Jesus entered the city and he claims the throne, his rightful place, in a rather unexpected way. I think this is where Jesus' coming and revealing himself was a bit underwhelming for the disciples. In this moment, it's overwhelming. They love it. They can see it. But it becomes a bit underwhelming for them. And again, in, in the context here, at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 19, uh, verse 1, Jesus, tells, Jesus is worried that his disciples are thinking that the kingdom is going to come right now. Uh, he says this uh, in, in chapter 19, 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold... Nope, that's not it. As uh, verse 11, different, two ones, uh, 1911. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The disciples thought the kingdom was going to happen imminently. Meaning they thought that Jesus was actually going to claim his throne in this week. They thought this is a procession into Jerusalem. Here we go. It's happening. Claim that throne. We're going to sit by you. It's going to be awesome. Uh, But what do we find? It isn't a throne that Jesus claims in this week, but it's a cross. It's not a crown of gold filled with the finest gems that he wears at the end of this week, but a crown of thorns. His coronation doesn't happen in the middle of the city with much clamor, but it happens outside the city on a hill on a cross. He doesn't put on the garments of praise, but he puts on the garments of sorrow, torn, beaten, mocked, afflicted. In the end of his life, Jesus actually doesn't appear to us to be very kingly at all. He's meek. He's humble. And yet, as we understand who he is, all that we've talked about, about him being king, him being the Messiah, him being God in the flesh, this should actually cause us to marvel all the more at what Jesus is doing at the end of this week. To see all that power, all that authority used how? to lay down his life. The donkey is a sign of humility. It's also a sign of peace that Jesus wasn't actually coming into the city to destroy Rome, to take Rome. He was coming in peace to actually save Rome. He was riding into his capital city to rescue it from a a deeper spell than Roman oppression, but from the oppression of Satan, from sin and death. He was coming in peace to the people to wage war on the principalities of darkness. And in this war he waged He was victorious. This is amazing. The crown and the cross have become signs of victory. The instruments of death have been used to destroy death. Jesus brings his upside down kingdom to bear on this earth. I think we can easily get confused and think our our cultural enemies are our actual enemies, but they're, they're not. Not really. They're the ones we're actually called to love. They're the ones that Jesus died for. Why? Because Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them enough to die for them. I think our our challenge is that we are probably more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. For those in this room, you're likely not denying that Jesus is king, although if that is you, if you you struggle to believe it, uh, the call here is to submit to him. He has revealed himself plainly of who he is. But for many of us, that's not our problem. We, We profess Jesus is king with our lips. In fact, if you've been singing songs this morning, you've sung these truths. But we often don't with our lives and how we live. In some ways, we've become inoculated to this amazing truth of the reality of that Jesus is king. 
We live as if we're our own kings. We give little thought to how Jesus lived and how he calls us to live. We quickly get fearful. We question our king's power and authority. And so the first call here for us is to wake up. To open your eyes, to see the truth, to see this beautiful picture of who our king is, King Jesus. And he calls us to come to him, to submit to him. But his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He's like no other king you could ever come to. Submission to this king is not like submitting to any other. With Jesus is the place of peace, the place of joy, the place of rest, to come to him and find our rest. Every other king in this world uh, demands of you are impossible to meet. You know, the kings that we struggle with, the idols we struggle with, the, you know, the king of money is never satisfied, always wanting more. The king of self is always lonely, always isolating us. The king of sex is always searching for something that can't be found. But with King Jesus, he took the demands of the law on himself so that you can actually be free. Freedom comes through submission to Christ. There is no lighter burden for you to bear than bearing with Christ. I think another thing that this encourages us towards is living public faith laying our cloak down, singing our praises. We don't need to hide our faith. You're already approved in Christ. Even when you are rebuked for it, take heart. Jesus was rebuked too. You're in good company. And he took a deeper rebuke on himself on the cross so that you never have to bear it on your own. You know, I think sometimes we limit our public faith to maybe doing, saying something online or uh, little comments here or there, but we're actually called to speak truth to people. Do our neighbors know what we believe? I'm asking this question of myself too. It can be easy because they ask me what my job is and I say I'm a pastor and then they quickly usually walk the other way. But, uh, but it's hard. But even, even I'm not great at this. Sometimes I can cower and I can hide my faith. Just the other day, uh, just the other week, I, I, I go through drive through and get coffee usually before I come to church on Sunday morning. And the person through the drive-thru asked me the question, Craig, uh, what do you, they didn't say my name, they didn't know my name, but they said, uh, hey, you guy there, uh, what are you doing today? And I said, oh, you know, just uh, laying low, you know, just uh, hanging out, you know. And they're like, oh, okay. And I got my coffee and I went on my way and I thought to myself, you know, that's not what I'm doing today. I'm coming to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. That's what I should have said. It would have seemed weird, but also would have, maybe it would have been compelling for that person. That we are coming to worship the God who made the heavens. We aren't doing nothing. We aren't just laying low on this day. We are coming to worship the God who made it all. We need to challenge ourselves to not be afraid to be public with our faith. To speak to people truth. So let us come to the feet of our king. Let us be people who recognize who he is. Praising his name. Learning to daily walk and live as citizens of his kingdom. Working and watching and waiting until the time that he comes back again. And when he comes back again, friends, what, a, what an amazing and mighty procession that will be. Praise be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. May you encourage us to live as a people that are citizens of your kingdom. That are bound to you that submit our lives to you. And even when we struggle to submit, we know that you are the forgiving king 
who we can come to and ask to forgive us and you do and you invite us in and you continue to give us rest, to give us healing, to give us strength. Help us to submit to your rule in our lives over any other rule that competes for us. Help us to trust in you, to hold fast in you, to have faith in you. And when we struggle, give us a people that can support us and encourage us and love us on this journey as we work and watch and wait and invest in this world until you come back again. Bind ourselves to Christ and to each other, we pray. Amen.